Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. So here we go with our most ambitious week yet. Seven podcasts in seven days, each with a different honorary councillor, chatting about their time with the Style Council. And don't worry if you don't know what an honorary councillor is, you're about to find out. 38 years after the single Speak Like a Child was released and Paul segued nicely from the jam to his new venture, the Style Council, let's kick off with musician Hilary Seabrook. Nowadays, she's a creative working with words, online, in print, and on air. But in the 1980s, she played sax with the Style Council. And you're about to enter a magical world of musical memories. So let's get into it. Thanks for joining us, Hilary. My pleasure. Welcome to the podcast, our first honorary councillor. Now explain to me what this means. For, for people who don't know, give us a bit of detail on what that is. There are a number of us who have played with the Style Council or who did play with the Style Council in the years that it was in operation, who weren't members of the band. So obviously I'm not Paul or Mick, and then I'm not Dee and Steve either. But we were kind of there. We tend to be the people who were there for more than just one session or one gig or, you know, whatever. And we're, we're quite a little family. Uh, so, so my place as sax player was taken by Billy Chapman. While I was playing with the Style Council, Animal Nightlife that Billy was playing with split up. And as soon as they split up, Paul went, right, let's get Billy in. So I got out and Billy came in. But Billy and I are good friends. It's not, this is not a kind of, you know, we don't hate each other or anything, you know. Sure. So there's, quite, there's a little group of us who are friends because we have been honorary councillors. 
it's back to this idea that Paul splits the jam and he wants a much looser, freer, less pressured environment to be able to create his music. So there's this, certainly from day one, this very temporary lineup almost, like you say, like, you know, mix there. Steve and Dee aren't involved from day one, but it's a very loose setup where he can work with the musicians he wants to work with, make the music he wants to work with without that pressure cooker that was in, in the jam, right? Right. And also so that it's an evolution. I think the style counts. If, if you look at where it goes from, you know, those very, very early gigs with Mick and then things like Speak Like a Child and Long Hot Summer, which were the singles that I kind of went, oh, okay, I took notice of those before I had any involvement with the band. And I'd liked them because there was that, they weren't jazz, but what were they? I didn't know what they yeah. were in a good way. Paul evolved the style council from that into something that became more formalized and that had more of its own style and then when it had run its course as far as he was concerned it that was it it was like well i'm going to move on to something else you know i love that i'm a massive fan of miles davis and miles davis did exactly that in that he played with a bunch of people and then went yeah okay that was great loved it but now I'm going to move on and do something different. And I read somewhere, I think it was Ian Munn's book, around the idea that every track was treated as if it was like a little screenplay or a little story. And, they, and then basically they're almost like, a, here's a brief for like, you know, they're casting for talent to take part in this story, essentially, which is where they get the honorary counsellors from, which I thought was really lovely. So when did you first become aware of Paul and his music? Was it the style council or were you into the jam? I wasn't into the jam. I didn't hate the jam, but I just wasn't <laughs> into it. So when the jam was happening... I was discovering music and I was very much going down the jazz route. I was classically trained. When I went sideways, I didn't go to pop. I went to jazz. I loved everything about the fun of the jazz environment as opposed to the classical environment. I mean, we're talking about the early 80s. And then to be a classical musician, everything was taken very, very seriously. Whereas if you were a jazz musician, you could you know, have as much fun as you liked. I just loved it. And I loved the freedom of it. My first awareness of who Paul Weller was, I mean, I probably heard his name. I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. So I, I, I did know about the jam. I just didn't listen to their music. And then like I say, it was Speak Like a Child, but more particularly, actually, that bass line on Long Hot Summer. For me, that was the musical motif that piqued my interest. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, OK, I don't know what this is, but I really like it. That was in the summer of 83. And in the September, I went to stay with a girlfriend before we went back to uni. Then I went home and suddenly I was at home and getting a phone call from John Weller. And at this time, you're doing loads of sessions. You're gigging all over London, right? Paul's dad, John Weller, he's, he's the manager. He's inviting you to audition at Solid Bond Studios, which is Style Council HQ. So do you know how he had come across you? Was it at one of these gigs or? Interestingly enough, I only found out about... 18 months ago, how he'd got hold of my number. And I played in a band called, well, the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And I was coming to the end of that because I was 20 then. And you were really supposed to be moving on by the time you were 21, 22. You know, it was kind of through school and university was fine. But then... This sounds uh, like me and the Cub Scouts when they had to kick me out. I was too old. To, I was a senior sixer. And I was like 18 or something. They're like, you've got to go to Scouts. It wasn't that old. But yeah. You've got to go to Scouts now. You can't stay in the Cubs. It sounds like the right. same thing. I was devastated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I only found out very recently in the last few months that the 
director of Nigel, a guy called Bill Ashton. I've always got on really well with him and we've stayed friends. I mean, he's in his 80s now. I still see him from time to time. He comes and we go out for lunch or whatever with his wife and, and we, you know, we get on really well. And he just dropped it into the conversation uh, literally a couple of years ago. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. How did I not know this? And he said that he's had a phone call from John Weller or Nikki or somebody from the office saying, Nigel, you're obviously a breeding ground for young jazz musicians we're after a sax player who can you suggest and he suggested me i love this this is so that's amazing <laughs> wow what did you have to do so you get down to solid bond can you remember what you had to do at the time wait a minute because it's a little bit more complicated than oh, that because okay. i was a baritone sax player which is the big one and i had an alto as well because you did i didn't have a tenor sax and in the midst of this conversation, John said, can you come down? And actually, when I was playing in the band, I was playing alto antenna. So I could have just come down with my alto and it would have been fine. But he said, mentioned something about tenor sax. So I kind of went, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. Okay. This was about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And the audition was at 11 o'clock the following morning. <laughs> so I ran down into town into Hitchin, where I live, I still live now, actually, or I haven't lived all the time. But there was an amazing music shop called John Myatt Woodwind. And I went in and I saw John, who had been my clarinet teacher when I was at school. And I said, John, I've been given this audition. I need a tenor sax. Can I have a brand new one out of the box to borrow? I'll borrow it for 24 hours. If I get the gig, I'll buy it with the money I make. And if I don't get the gig, I'll just bring it back. And he went, yeah, that's fine. Oh, so brilliant. I took this brand new <laughs> tenor sax down. I'll be honest, I'm a bit naive on the sax. Is it something that comes out of the box ready to go or do you have to tune it or? Oh, no, no, no. You've got to tune it and all of that sort of stuff. You've got to, yeah. I mean, I spent the whole of that evening (laughs) like practicing and trying to work out what he might want to hear. And and obviously, you know, I was a, a baritone sax player, so it wasn't a problem to have stuff to play, but I didn't know what he wanted to hear really. I think because I was in Nigel, Paul knew that I was going to be able to play and it was more about whether I could fit in with the band, with him and Mick and the other guys, you know, at Solid Bond and stuff. So I think mm. it was as much that as anything else. And it's such a youthful, fresh, kind of exciting lineup. I was talking to um, Dennis Monday the other day about him bringing Steve White in. And I think Steve was 17, 18, crazy, like no age at all, like crazy. I think he was 17 and I think he turned 18 just before the European tour, which was why he was able to come on the tour. Oh, I think right. otherwise he would have had to, you know, there would have had to be his mum coming along or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Cramps his style somewhat, Whitey, I'm sure. Can you remember what you had to, what you actually did in the audition? Uh, honestly, I can't. I really can't remember. I've got a, I've got a vague recollection that they played me a track and asked me to play along with it. Was it like X Factor where Paul and Mick are sat behind a big table with red buzzers? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. We were actually in the studio itself. I've got a funny feeling they might have been in the control room, actually. But anyway, it was just like, you know, get sax out, play a bit. And then it was, right, okay, these are the dates. This is what we're going to do. So you're there for Paul's first European shows since breaking up the jam. So this is October 1983. And you kick off in Zurich. And it's the world premiere of the Style Council Live. Isn't it called the Style Council with Paul Weller or the Style, something like that? Is that right? Oh, you've got a poster behind you. <laughs> I have, yeah. The Style Council feet. Paul Weller. Feats Paul Weller and Tracy and the Soul Square supporting. And it's a bit strange in the sense that, so the Style Council go first, then Tracy, and then the Style Council for the second and final part. Is that right? No, 
Because there was Vaughan to lose. Oh, first. okay. Have you heard about Vaughan? Dancing, right? Is that right? Yeah. It was just amazing. He was a DJ. One of the nicest guys you could ever hope to meet. He was just... In fact, I'm getting chills thinking about him because he died of AIDS some years later. He just kind of got everything warmed up and he was just amazing. He kicks off, then the Star Council, then Tracy then the, the Star yeah. Council back again. And it's a pretty intensive schedule. I was looking the other day. We well, do have some nights off, but I'm imagining the nights off are quite full on, having heard stories of the Star Council out on the booze. So that first night in Zurich, let's kick off with that. Can you remember what it was like to play with the band from day one? Are these packed crowds? Yes. Oh, yeah. The one thing that I remember more than anything, they were shouting out names of songs that most of them I'd never heard of, but obviously things like the jam songs. Right. You know, that's what they wanted to hear. And it did actually wind Paul up. He really really didn't like it. Yeah, I bet. Like screaming Eton Rifles or Town Called yeah, or something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Having said that, the audiences loved what we did because Paul is still Paul. Don't forget, it's still Paul Weller standing up there. It might not be the jam, but it's still Paul. The stuff that, that you're all doing was incredible. So we're kicking off with things like, it just came to pieces in my hand, money go round, dropping bombs in the White House, here's the one that got away, Long Hot Summer, Paris Match, Speak Like a Child. These are incredible songs, like you say. So it's not like you're hitting them with this new stuff and the jam fans are going, what is this? These are quality, quality songs. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I do remember about those shows in Europe was Kenny. People talked about people like Kenny, who was the... So Kenny was like the, 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 like the bouncer guy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. Heard a, I've heard a bit from reading things, but yeah. Oh, he was great bloke. All of the guys who were involved, a lot of them had been involved with the jam. They couldn't believe how much quieter on stage everything was. You know, you could literally hear every part you could hear everything that was going on it wasn't just this wall of sound we've talked a lot about jam gigs on this and the energy was ferocious where they're playing at 100 miles an hour whereas actually the style council seems much more relaxed just completely different world isn't it to what he was doing before yeah and actually it didn't feel different to me to the jazz gigs that i was doing you know in london in the uk because it didn't have to be the same Every time. I mean, obviously, there was a format. We all had to know what everyone was doing, but it didn't have to be exactly the same every time. And that was really nice. I read somewhere that you all wore skiing gear for the, oh, yeah. for the Zurich gig. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> Just for a bit, yeah. It was mad. That must have been roasting hot on stage, surely. Yeah. I've got a funny feeling that it was only for like, you know, a couple of songs. And we didn't wear the whole kit, but it was partly to be, we thought we were, we were sort of like entering into the spirit of where we were going to, you know. It was only Zurich. There was no other date on the tour where the ski gear came in. Well, no, because obviously no. there was no skiing in it. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a real sense of humour about everything. I mean, we worked our socks off. We did work hard, but there was a sense of humour about everything. So you have a night off in Paris. You play Paris. You have a night off in Brussels. And I believe you went to see Star Wars Return of the Jedi. I remember that really clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad film, apart from the Ewoks. I think it was all right. Well, I like the Ewoks. <laughs> now, you play Hamburg and then a potential disaster in Amsterdam. This is Halloween 1983. What happened in Amsterdam? There was a support band and they'd got a sax player. I'm always really organised, get my stuff sorted. None of this running around last minute. I'd got my saxes out backstage while they were playing and sort of warming up, getting everything sorted, 
I must have walked away, come back, and the alto was gone. I think I had the tenor with me, and then the alto was gone just before the gig, and it was hell. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really scary. I mean, I was at uni at the time, but this was my livelihood, you know, my sax. And let me tell you, sax players are like guitarists and everything else. You know, we're very precious about our instruments. You know, you couldn't have just gone out and got me another alto and just gone, there you go. I wanted my horn. So, yeah, so Paul made an announcement on stage. And what happened was, was that... <laughs> well, I love the fact that Paul's making the announcement. Well, yeah, he, he was like, he was, he was annoyed. So what happened was he made the announcement. We either messed around with the set list or something. Anyway, and then all of a sudden what had happened was that the support band had been driving and they realised that they'd got one sax too many or something. And so they came back and deposited it and it was fine and oh, I played wow. the rest of the gig. <laughs> and I suppose that looseness helps in a way, like you say, you can just change the set list to fit and work it all out. I think like so. I've got no real recollection of how that happened, but it all worked out. Oh, brilliant. In terms of recording, so you were on the recording from My Ever-Changing Moves, which was the Star Council's fifth single. There are like about five or six different versions. So I'm going to do a quick test with you, see if you remember, right? So we've got the short version... Were you on that one? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm if I'm on what is called the short version. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's the seven inch. Then there's the long version. Yeah, that's the twelve inch. Then the slow version. I'm not on that because that's it's either with guitar or violin. There's one with violin. Then the fast version. Oh, I don't know about the fast version. And then a version on the album, which was Paul on or accompanied by piano, whether he was on piano or not, I'm not sure. But yeah. but the main single, the no, the one we know and love, Paul on vocals, guitar, Mick on piano, Steve on drums. You on sax. Peter Wilson, which we talked about the jam, is like this, this connection, former jam producer. He's on synth. Barbara Snow on trumpet. So uh, like this honorary councillor's things expanding like you talked about. What can you remember about recording that song? I don't think when we recorded it, we were sure whether it was going to be a single or not. When we came back from the tour, we were sitting on the tour bus and Paul just turned around and said to me, we're going to do some recording next week. Do you want to come in? And so I went, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> so I just sort of turned up and he would be like, oh, we're going to do this track. Oh, we're going to do that track. We're going to do this. Sometimes he would play me a track and then say, that's what we're going to do, but we're not going to record that today. We're going to do another or whatever, you know, and I'd go away and think about it and come back or whatever. Yeah, so it's hard to remember individual mm, recording yeah, sessions. Yeah. What I do remember is just being in Solid Bond. I mean, this is a historic recording studio and just being there was a real part of history, musical history. And Pete Wilson was great. He was such a good engineer slash producer, whatever, you know. So this is Marble Arch in London. It is Style Council HQ, essentially, from that. Because the whole business was run from there, wasn't it? So I know that oh, Nikki, yeah. Nikki Weller was there, you know, John, they're, they're all based there. You walked down the path and on the right was the recording studio and then straight ahead was the offices. So John had an office Nikki had an office. There were two or three other people who I didn't really know what they did. And then there was a sort of little restaurant type place that we used to sit in from time to time. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And what was the vibe? Because I imagine this whole thing is very fresh and new and it's off the back of the jam, like we say. So it's terribly exciting, but it feels like there's a huge amount of energy behind these recording sessions and, and a lot of experimentation. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd done a lot of sessions and I did a lot of sessions afterwards where you didn't have this sense of experimentation and creativity, which there was with the style cats. I think it's because it was his own studio. He could do whatever he liked. If it took three days to record a track, it didn't matter so much. It was up to him. Whereas a lot of the other stuff that I did, either before or after, was, right, you go into the studio at 11 o'clock and at 11 o'clock the clock starts ticking and, and that's it. Just keep going. There was a creativity and a freedom and a sense of working on something working on a project that was interesting nice and very collaborative as well yeah but paul had the final say (laughs) you know you could you you could be as creative as you like but if it wasn't what paul wanted then you know so there were times when pete would say right this is the sax line play it on a keyboard and then i would play and that would be it so there were times when that was done the way it was done but there were other times when there was discussion and let's see what you can do. One song I have to talk to you about is one that I think the entire Style Council and, and probably the entire Weller community absolutely love, which is Head Start for Happiness. Oh, it's what my favourite. What a tune. And this is you, Mick, DC Lee and Barbara on trumpet again. Wow, what a track. I just loved that track from the minute we recorded it. It's catchy, but it's just... What's really interesting about it is that... So obviously, I, my name's Hillary. Well, Hillary, hilarious, hilarity. It means that you're happy. The song really resonated with me because it's how I feel, which is that I feel like I had a head start to happiness because of my name. And because it's like, if you're called Hillary, you have to be kind of fun. And it is a great pop song. I bet that was a really good one to play live as well, yeah? Yeah, it was. It was. I loved that. And in fact, there were quite a few times when we were doing TV stuff afterwards and I preferred it when we were doing Head Start to Happiness compared to when we were doing My Ever-Changing Moods. I loved My Ever-Changing Moods, but it didn't hit me the way Head Start for Happiness did. I've seen some of the TV performances from the big shows back in the day. So the Tube, Top of the Pops, which is at the time was like the pinnacle, wasn't it? Primetime TV. Everybody wanted to be on TOTP and Saturday Superstore. How much of it was live versus you having to all mime? Most of the TV was mimed. The Tube was live. In the early 80s, there was this whole thing about the TV companies, I think for technical reasons, wanted everything to be pre-recorded and just mimed. But the musicians obviously wanted to perform live. So there was a mixture of stuff. It was beginning to change then, but certainly the Tube was completely live. That was so much fun. And that show was live as well. It, didn't it, oh, yeah, the whole it, thing. It, the yeah, whole it, thing brought, it broadcast live as well, didn't it? Yeah. So not, not just, yeah. yeah, that must have been terrifying. It's a big TV show, that. Yeah, it was. But there was also a sense that it was only like performing to a room full of people. 
I mean, the, the fact that there were other people watching on TV. If I'd known, by the way, that 30, however many years later, people would still be asking me about what I was wearing and whatever, you know, I think I might have given it some more thought than I did. <laughs> There's this lovely quote in uh, Mr. Call's Dream, the book I mentioned earlier, which comes from Paul. And he said, the Style Council will always represent youth, vitality, sunshine and friendships made that have pretty much endured. I loved it. It feels like for you, that's bang on point as well, because I know there's oh. lots of connections and you're still in, in touch with lots of people from the band at that time. Yeah, yeah. there is something about the connections you make when you are working hard. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was fun, but you worked hard, but you could also be creative. We were always listening to different music and books. I mean, I've, I've actually got a book upstairs that Paul lent me on that tour that I keep thinking, oh God, I must remember to give him that back, you know, but it's like 38 years later. I'm not sure that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like a library. It'll be like, yeah, there's a fine yeah. on that. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you feel when you first, you heard the first album? So Cafe Blur comes out and I mean, as a jazz fan, I, I imagine you'd love it because there's like six tracks that Paul isn't even singing on. There's a rap, a gospel, which I think you might have played on. Would that be right? I did, yeah. 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 Not Paul rapping, although he has done a bit in his time, but this is Dizzy Heights rapping. Yeah. It feels so I mean so brave to go do you know what this is I don't know I mean the record label must have been like what what's going on I think that there was a sense everywhere among the label with the music press with the radio and and everything that this was a bit odd and you either thought it was good because it was a bit odd or you thought it was bad because it was a bit odd (laughs) I think that was one of the reviews for this podcast I've been proud of that album since the moment I heard it. Because, of course, when you're recording tracks, you don't know what the whole album sounds like. I wasn't involved in the process of of mixing and choosing what track went where and in what order or whatever. So when I got my copy, got my LP and went, oh, okay, and started and played it. And I was like, this is good. I also, I really liked the fact that there were so many different people on different tracks. There's Paul Mick, Steve D, but then there were everybody else and Paul wasn't on everything. And I loved it for that. Loved yeah. it. Were you there when D comes on board? And did you, you know, feel like suddenly there's a connection between the, not just D and Paul, but the four of them with Mick and Steve and it feeling like there's this, suddenly this nucleus of a band? Yes. Yes, I think so. She has got something special and she just worked. The four of them worked so well together. And it was obvious that the rest of us were contributing, but we were only contributing, whereas the four of them. And I think it was during that European tour that they started to go, yeah, okay, we're here now and this is who we are. Can you remember your final day with the Star Council? Yeah, I was in tears. I bet. Should I touch on this or is this going to be emotional? You can, you can, it's fine. I have a lot of respect for Paul and always will have. And he decided that he was going to be the one to tell me that I wasn't going to do the next tour. And I cried and he was really understanding. And it wasn't that they were dissatisfied with me. It was that Billy was available and that Billy, I think, would probably have always been their first choice sax player. He just worked well with them for that period that Billy was there. But, you know, Billy didn't last with them forever because of that whole thing about changing. And I think the fact that Paul showed me the respect of just taking me to one side on my own and just saying, right, this is what's going to happen. Yes, that was my last day, but it wasn't actually my last day with contact with the band. I mean, by a long way, because these people were my friends. I was going to their parties. I was hanging out at the studio. I was doing all sorts of things, you know, for several months. And actually, although I was really upset that day, it was the best 
thing that actually could have happened for me because I was in my final year of my degree and my uni had been really happy with me dipping in and out, just wandering in when I felt like it and then being on telly. And of course, they were very proud of that, you know, but it was approaching the point of me doing my final exams. And if I'd gone on tour, I wouldn't have been able to do my final exams. So I would probably have had to redo my third year. So in actual fact, it was probably for the best. It did you a favour in life. <laughs> yes, a favour in life, yeah. I know that you're a teacher, so was that what you went on to do after that? I've had what is known as a portfolio career. I haven't been doing any sessions recently because I wasn't very well a few years ago. I had to sort of stop for a little while. But I spend my time in a mix between writing, so words, and then teaching. I do some teaching of English and some teaching of the sax and various other things, music in general. So I sort of, I bimble about really. <laughs> and we have something in common, although I don't know the deal with podcasts. Are you meant to cross promote or, or are we competitors? I don't know what the deal is. The Harmonious World podcast. It's amazing. So what happened was I was doing, I did some, uh, so I did some radio, really enjoyed doing that, but I always felt like I was always on somebody else's radio station I'd always thought I'd like to do a podcast on my own. And then a couple of musicians were interested in me interviewing them. And I thought, right, well, I'm going to do this for me then, not for a radio station. So I thought, right, well, what am I going to call it? This was in May last year. And I found this quote from Quincy Jones. And in essence, it is, imagine what a harmonious world it would be if everybody shared what they're good at. Nice. And I just thought, that's me down completely 100%. If we all shared what we're good at, I don't care whether you're really good at being, a, you're a plumber or an electrician or a hairdresser or a road sweeper or whatever, but whatever it is that you're good at, share it with other people and acknowledge that other people are good at other things, you know. So that's my, that's where my podcast comes in. Love it. And this is musicians from any genre, any era. It's yeah. musicians, composers, producers from yeah. jazz, as we've been talking about, to classical, to folk, rock, everything in between. Everything. It's amazing. Because start doing these things, then people get to hear about it. So I've got two of the people that I have interviewed so far for 2021 are Grammy nominated, you know, so I'm excited oh. about what's going to happen on the 14th of March. And it's exciting. I just love the industry of music. There's bits about it that is awful and horrible and but the way people can be creative but also successful. I love that. Once you finish listening to this one, available on all, all podcast platforms right now, and probably even if you ask your smart speaker to play the podcast, it will do it as well. Loads and loads of special memories. This has been so lovely. What did you make of Paul going solo, and, and have you stayed in touch with that music since? Yeah, I have. And as I said, as I think we started off saying at the beginning, I mean, I think he just is evolving all the time. I mean, one of the things that I really like is I quite often we'll see images of him will flash up on social media and whatever. I think one of the things that I like about him is he is never afraid to be himself. That seems to be important to him. And I think visually and musically, you know, he wears what he wants to wear. He has his hair cut the way he wants to have his hair cut at the time and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So I've always been aware of what he's been doing all the way through. And I think he may be going out as Paul Weller, but he's never a solo artist. He's always collaborating with other people, whether that's in musically or whether that's just in, in performance, you know, whether it's in the creation of the songs and, and that sort of thing or, or, or whether it's just in the performance. But he's always generously 
collaborating with other people. And I, I've, I've always really, really respected that. And every once in a while, I'll hear a song and go, well, I can hear it's Paul. Obviously, I, I'm tuned into his voice. And I hear it and go, yeah, okay, I really like that. I mean, there are others that leave me a bit like, yeah, all right. But I do think he's an absolute genius songwriter. I really do. I genuinely think that in years to come, he stands alongside Lennon and McCartney and, you know, all sorts of people who've written great songs. I've got two final questions for you. I don't know if you know what's coming because these two final questions generally are the same ones for every podcast that we do. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be solo, the jam, or probably more likely in this case, I imagine the Star Council. And I may know what it is. Let's see if we can guess. And then your second question is, the idea of this podcast is to lead up with a big meeting with Paul, a chat that I've never managed to secure in my radio career. The one big regret I have from giving up a career as a broadcaster 10 years ago. What should I talk to Paul about? Is there any question you think I should cover off? So fire away. What, what song do you want to go with? Well, obviously, it's going to be Head Start for Happiness. I told you. <laughs> I've won 20 quid. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah, I just think it's a really, really good song. And I think, yeah, you know, for all the reasons that we've discussed. So that's a done deal. I would ask Paul, I tell you what I would ask him, actually. I would ask him about where he gets his inspiration from, because I love the fact that he gets his inspiration from loads of different places, you know, from literature and art and life in general and the news. And he's very aware of the world. And I love that. And I think to be that connected to so many different things is a sign of somebody who's just a good person. And I just think to get to the bottom of that would be really interesting. You can tell that you're a professional because that is a killer question. (laughs) Great. (laughs) I shall add that to the top of my list. Hilary, this has been an absolute blast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Thanks, Dan. Wish you all the best with your podcast. Well, that was lovely. My thanks once again to Hilary Seabrook for joining me on the podcast and sharing stories of life within the Style Council. You can find out more by heading to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Check out show notes, information on Hilary's podcast, and some wonderful videos of those very early Style Council performances. Just go online, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Next up, we hear from the man who not only gets the accolade for the very first reference to an honorary councillor, but he was also a part of the Paul Weller movement when Paul went solo in the 90s. The fabulous Zeke Manyika is on our next podcast, so keep an eye out tomorrow. Please share this episode on social media. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. On Twitter, we're at WellerFanPod, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.